the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and as you're turning there, Luke chapter 1, uh, good to see you all. Welcome. G- great to have you. Those of you who are new are especially welcome. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning as uh, we really continue and descend in our time of worship. Luke chapter 1. And we've been in, uh, as Neil mentioned, we've been in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We will push pause uh, just to take a little break as we ended chapter 5. And look here at the Gospel of Luke in light of the Christmas season. Luke chapter 1. Well, as you're turning there, uh, this, of course, is a festive time of year, and rightly so. And uh, a reminder that as we uh, think of Christmas and we're busy with all of the normal stuff at Christmas with parties and holidays and probably stress, and maybe, as, as Colby Riley prayed, sorrow. This can be a, a time of uh, sorrow for a lot of people, as you remember loss or as there are just different trials that befall us, um, and, uh, and those, sort of a thing, those sort of things, it's very normal. But I just want to encourage us, as, as we're hanging out with family, friends, whatever it is you're doing, uh, it's so critical to just pause and, and, and breathe, not just to rest, but to remember what is, what is this all about? Why does Christmas exist? This is one of the uh, oldest holidays. Um, the day, Christmas Day, of course, was created uh, by man. We don't know exactly what day uh, Jesus was born. Maybe sometime end of the year, this time of year. Some say November-ish. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The point is we choose a day to mark and rightly celebrate uh, one of the greatest miracles and most important things that's ever happened, and that's the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And this is a day while... Most holidays are holidays created by men. Uh, This is a holiday, again, the day aside, we don't know exactly, that's created by God. And I would just encourage us, as as you're with friends, family, maybe those, some who are not yet believing, uh, push pause as you're around the table, around the presence, whatever it is, and, and talk about and think on and meditate, especially with not yet believing family, beloved. What is, what is this holiday about? How did this start? How did this get launched? What is the focus here? And uh, as I was thinking about that, what, what we would study this morning and coming up on Christmas Eve for our Christmas Eve outreach service, uh, it's kind of funny, in uh, 14, almost 15 short years as a church, we're exhausting a lot of the passages that are kind of the traditional Christmas passages. And uh, I don't like to do a lot of reruns on Sunday mornings, and so we're, we're running out of some of them. Uh, but there's a big one that I, we haven't studied yet, and it sort of popped out at me in an aha moment, and I was preparing uh, for this morning, and that's Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. We studied the birth of Christ in Luke 2, John 1, the deity of Christ, Hebrews 2, why God became a man, uh, other passages in Luke, but not this one here. So turn there if you haven't already, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And again, thanks for bearing with us with the technical difficulties this morning. Appreciate that. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. God's sovereign preparation for Christmas is what this is about. 
I'll read this familiar text and then we'll dig in. And just push pause. And whether this is the, the first or 10,000 and first time you've heard uh, the factual, historical, inerrant account uh, of the Christmas story, what happened, the history behind it, I pray that you would just be able to, to relax this morning and be encouraged in God's sovereignty and what he's done to bring about this most significant, one of the most arguably, if not the most celebrated holiday across the globe, one which is celebrated on just about every continent. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, follow along as I read God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The reading of the word of God. Well, we've, uh, as I mentioned, we've been in Romans a bunch. We haven't been in Luke. So just a, kind of a brief word of context, what's going on here in Luke. Uh, this text, of course, records for us one of the greatest prophecies that's ever been given uh, in history, one of the greatest events, the incarnation of Christ. And as I was uh, doing our devotionals with our kids this week, they're asking, what does that term incarnation mean? And you've probably heard this, but uh, if you like carne asada, right? Carne, the, the word for meat. Uh, is in their incarnation, uh, comes from a Latin word. It just means that, that God taking on flesh. This text is not talking about the beginning of Jesus's existence. Super important delineation and, and distinction to make and understand, especially as you talk with people who maybe aren't quite clear on, on the whole event. It's not the beginning of Jesus's existence. It's the beginning of his incarnation, his humanity. And this is what's being prophesied here. Now, a, a note about Luke that's highly significant. Um, he has, it's helpful to, to scoot back a little bit to the beginning. Look, just look back earlier in chapter one, at verse three. Um, Luke says, it seemed fitting for me as well, Luke 1, 3. This is Luke talking here, giving his sort of introduction to, to this historical account having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, verse four, so that you may know the certainty about the things 
you've been taught. Two super important things to keep in mind about Luke. Number one, as you see here in verse three and four, he took meticulous care and, and did painstaking research to write, of course, by the Spirit, inerrantly on what happened concerning the incarnation, the life, resurrection, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having invested, investigated everything carefully there uh, in verse 3. Now, that word investigated, there it means, it's the idea of to make an extensive effort to learn the details and truth about something. And that word carefully, it means uh, pertaining to strict conformity to a norm or a standard in detail. So Luke, who uh, many historians say he was a physician, took a lot of care and, and went through all kinds of uh, hard work to say, look, what I'm writing down, I'm telling you, it is fact. In verse 4, writing to this guy Theophilus, that was a semi-common name in the first century. We don't know exactly who he was. Made, maybe of someone of some ranking, maybe a, a, a political ruler in, li- in light of the address, so that you may know with certainty. These aren't fables. These aren't myths. Uh, this isn't about a guy sitting under a lotus tree. This isn't about some unverified, you know, fairy tales, so that you may know the certainty about what you've been taught writing down this gospel. The second thing about Luke, it's very important, is that this introduction, he writes with a, a very sort of academic, uh, lofty style of Greek, only in verses one through four of chapter one here in his introduction. So what? Well, it tells us Luke was extremely learned, maybe some, maybe scholarly, uh, uh, an intellect. Why does that matter? Because again, he's, he's taking great care to think through, verify from a human standpoint, exactly what happened concerning the life of Christ. And of course, again, we know for 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, the Spirit, of course, inspired the text, so it is inerrant. So just a note of introduction there about the human instrument through which God gave this gospel. He took painstaking care. And here is the opening. This prophecy, this great prophecy on God's sovereign announcement of Christmas. And from the text, we're going to see five, we'll see uh, five exercises of God's sovereignty in Christmas. Five exercises of God's sovereignty in the preparation for Christmas. This is a fantastic moment in history, uh, illustrating the sovereignty of God. It's not just, as, as you think about this text, this isn't just about Christ coming into the world. This is about God's sovereignty hovering over all things in human history to orchestrate everything so that the prophecies would come true. It's really, t- this text is also largely about what Psalm 135, 6 says, that whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven on earth, in the sea, and all deeps, that God is sovereign over history. And if you are someone living just before this announcement, you didn't know what was going on, you, you were, and you were living in, in the Mideast and uh, an Israelite, you were groaning. Because since about 586 BC, when the Babylonians came and chopped down Jerusalem and shaved the wall and the city and the temple to the ground, you're, you're tempted to think generation after generation has the Lord just shelved us for a while. You know, we're getting like radio silence from God. This, is, this seems like the silent treatment. 
from God is we haven't heard from him in a long time. And yeah, we know what the Old Testament, what the Bible says about his sovereignty, but what's happening here? As Rome ruled the Mediterranean world and Rome ruled with an iron fist over Israel, Israel is not its own territory at the moment. And so these God's people were groaning, understandably so, under the weight of the curse within and without. And so this text is a bullhorn as God breaks the radio silence, and it's a bullhorn declaring God is sovereign. And he's not asleep at the wheel. As he declares this greatest of miracles, the uncreated creator wrapping himself in creation. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union where the first time ever you have not only uncreated God and created humanity coming into one individual, but you have two natures in one. Christ has two natures. This, is, this can't be said about us, right? Maybe the spirit and the flesh, but that's still of humanity. Deity and humanity in one person, the hypostatic union. Five exercises of God's sovereignty in preparation for Christmas. Number one is the messenger of God. God summons and declares and sends this messenger of God, the messenger of God, verse 26. Look there, if you would, with me, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, what sixth month? Just look back at verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, this is the mother of John the Baptist, who was a, a cousin of Jesus, in his humanity, you recall earlier in chapter one that she was, she was barren. She experiences not a miracle like Mary will, will, a little bit lesser, but still not able to have children. God grants the prayers of her husband, Zechariah, and Elizabeth and his wife conceived. Verse 24, she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me and taken away my disgrace among men. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, here it is, the messenger, Gabriel. God breaks his silence. Gabriel, of course, means God is my strength. He's an angel. Angels very, very, very rarely appear in history. As a matter of fact, at this point, it's been about 500 years since an angel has appeared in redemptive history. The last time an angel appeared, it was Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9, speaking about the end times. So Gabriel comes again. And of course, not only has it been about 500 years since an angel has come, but 500 years since God has spoken. The last book of the Bible, Malachi, Ezra, maybe a couple other books about the same time as Malachi, 400-ish BC, silence from God. You can understand why people are scratching their heads saying, is God still alive? Is he still around? Boom, he breaks the silence. His final word in the Old Testament, again, Malachi, he's not asleep at the wheel. God hasn't forgotten. And sometimes we can wonder that as well. You know, as it's been 2,000 years, plus or minus, it's like, okay, when uh, all these promises about Jesus coming back, when's that going to happen? And it seems like the wicked rule, the wicked reign, 
this stuff about God and Christ is just kind of old, archaic fantasies. But 2,000 years is nothing for God. Remember that this isn't, technically, this isn't the first announcement and prophecy of of Christ's coming. When was the first one? Genesis 3.15, right? Like the beginning of creation. How long was that from, from that until Abraham, who knows, measured in the thousands? And then from Abraham to Christ, how long is that? About 2,000 years. So this is nothing from God, for God. God says, I'm going to take care of it. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, in the, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive him as adoption as sons. And then one day God speaks, he's working, he's not asleep. His timetable, his watch, his, his, his calendar, as it were, is just a tad different than ours. And so we can trust God that if all this stuff has happened already, Christ came, so many prophecies have been fulfilled already, God's God's not going to have a moment of amnesia as it comes to redemptive history and bringing in the Savior. You can count on it. And look, and sometimes people say, well, I wish I was there to, you know, see the angels, see the... You're in a much better place in redemptive history. You're placed at a much more profitable location because all of these things have happened. Not only has the Messiah come, but you've seen a wave of so what about the Messiah, the gospel spreading across the world. And still 2,000 years later, you have people on just about every continent who have bowed the knee to Christ. And so God's not asleep at the wheel. He breaks the silence. He's moving. He's working. I love how C.S. Lewis pictures this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember the prophecy. And sort of an allegory, nevertheless it's helpful, it does point to Christ. The prophecy is, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets his death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And then the the follow-up to that is, when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Caraparaval and throne, the evil time will be over and done. And in the book, you remember, it's like, it's been a hundred winters with no Christmas. When's, it gonna, when's Christmas going to happen? And the silence is broken there, just like it is here. The messenger of God brings the news. Number two, God's second exercise of sovereignty, the humble grace of God. Number two, the humble grace of God. God exercises his sovereignty in showing his humble grace. In the last half of verse 26, all the way through verse 30, the humble grace, and you'll see the humble grace of God in two ways here, in his choice of the place for the prophecy to be fulfilled and his choice of the people through whom the prophecy will be fulfilled. The humble grace of God. Look at the end of verse 26. Gabriel is sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, the Greek translates it city, but that's a push. That's like saying, you know, 10 Sleep Wyoming is a city. Or Ulysses, Kansas is a city, right? Maybe a little technical issue there. 
in the text, but God's humble grace in the place where he brings the prophecy. You remember in John 1.45, when Philip, he finds Nathaniel and he's like, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. The, the, the one about whom all the prophets wrote, Isaiah, Micah, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Nazareth, was, it's just one of those towns where you might drive through, like sometimes we may or may not do in Wyoming, and we're driving through and we're thinking, why would anyone want to live here? <laughs> well, you know, wow. Why would you choose this place? That's how Nazareth was in the ancient world, even among Israelites. You know, Israel itself to Rome, who ruled over Israel, it'd be like, why, why would anyone want to live there? You know, there's better cities to live in. And then even the Israelites within that would say, anywhere but Nazareth. I've, I've been to Nazareth, and it's just kind of a, a lump in the plains. It's much more populated these days, obviously. But then it was a very small, rural, Hebrew conservative village. And there wasn't much happening there. Maybe there was a little bit of limestone industry in the ancient world, but that was about it. You know, and if, if, if you're God and you're thinking, where am I going to bring this promise? Where, gonna, where am I going to make this huge announcement? You know, and you got the Roman world, the Mediterranean world at the time. You're, you're thinking, well, Alexandria, Athens, Rome, Philippi, other places, Nazareth. You know, it's like those t-shirts you see sometimes, you know, Paris, New York, Tokyo, you know, Smut or Grover or something. Right? It just... But God is sovereign in every detail. There's no, there, there's no accidents. There's no, there's no chaos. There's no random, randomness in this. God is exercising his sovereignty in a way that goes against the pomp and the pride that's innate to human nature. All of this is on purpose. And this is like a theme up to the cross. And even how God commands his people to live. Not exalting yourselves over one another. But as this baby in the manger would grow up to show us in John 13, like washing each other's feet. That's how I want you to approach life in one another. This obscure place. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so probably are these towns God chooses. Not only his humble grace in the place, but the people. Look back at the text, verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now you're thinking, okay, are these, if you've never read this before and you're operating by normal worldly principles, are these kings and are they a king and queen? At least king and queen of Nazareth, if nothing else? No, there are no kings and queens in Nazareth, only peasants. This is a, a backwoods place that was scorned by everybody. But the king of kings will come from this place, Jesus of Nazareth. That name 
of that town fixed to him. And notice his, his parents here. By the way, Joseph has never called his father in like a biological sense. He, he was sort of adopted. See that more in verse 34 and 35. Joseph and Mary. Miriam, literally. Popular name. Nothing notable about them. They're not royalty. They're not elites of Jerusalem, as God would choose a vehicle for the Messiah. Uh, Joseph uh, had a very blue-collar, calistan job in the first century, a carpenter, uh, peasants, they're engaged. Um, and, and in first century culture, the engagement is not like engagement today. Typically, uh, it would happen through arrangement. There are arranged marriages in your teens, maybe 14, 15 years old, something like that. And this, this engagement wasn't like a test drive, like let's see if we like each other. It was contractual. And, and you don't break this under except under one rule, which we'll look at more in verse 34 and 35. And so here they are engaged. Joseph, though, is in David's line. Now, that, while that's very significant for the prophecy, in Hebrew culture in the first century, that it's not major. A, there are a lot of people in David's line. It was significant. It might be a little bragging, right? But it wasn't, you, you didn't stand out a whole lot, especially if you're from Nazareth and in that day, a carpenter. And then look what he says. Greetings, verse 28, what Gabriel says. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Favored one. Notice that phrase. Down in verse 30 as well. Well, let's keep reading. Go to verse 29. But she was perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Now, there's been a lot of confusion about what's happening in verse 28, 29, and 30 over the centuries, unnecessary confusion, where sometimes this text is taken and it's misunderstood to show that Mary is like a cut above the rest of humanity, and more specifically, that she's sinless, that she's Without sin, she's not born in Adam, as we've been studying in Romans 5. This became an official doctrine in Romanism, December 8th, 1854, when Pope Pius IX made this official doctrine. Remember when a pope in the Roman system uh, decrees or speaks what's called ex cathedra, it's as, in Roman Catholic thinking, it's considered as authoritative as the Bible and more, actually, functionally. And this is Roman doctrine. It says this, quote, The most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin, end quote. So Mary is sinless, which means she's deity, basically. Uh, not born in Adam, perfect. But there's a couple things in this text in verse 28 to 30 that, that say not really. First of all, this, this term favored one in verse 28. This, this Greek term, it's, it's only elsewhere used interestingly, and I don't think coincidentally, in Ephesians 1.6, where Paul is writing about believers, and he's, and he's saying, you were chosen before the foundation of the earth 
right, to adoption by the Father, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he, same word in the Greek, freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That word freely bestowed, one word in Greek, that word is used of all believers in light of, despite their sinfulness, the grace God has shown them in salvation. Every believer has this term, sometimes translated favored one, said about them. One writer says, Warren Wearsby, he writes this, Mary is blessed among women, but not above women. And then in verse 30, this phrase, you have found favor with God. Mary was certainly godly, a humble young woman. However, this, this phrase, you have found favor with God, it literally says, and I wish it would be translated this way, one who has been graced. Or you who have been shown grace. Why is that significant? Because what does grace mean, as we've been studying in Romans? Favor that you can't earn, but God has shown you, despite your sinfulness, though you deserve the opposite. It's a term always spoken of those who sin, who have sin, who need forgiveness, who need grace. It's extended to those who have sinned. So what? Well, whatever Mary was, clearly from this text, she is simply another sinner saved by grace. And to exalt her any place above that is to violate the inerrant and the authoritative text of God. She is, and Mary would be, she would gag if she knew what was happening today in her name. Later on in Luke 147, in the Magnificat, she says, just look over there real quick, see it for yourself, verse 47. It's a great passage, a great song that she sings. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit, Luke 147, has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Meaning, I need to be saved. The only reason you call God your Savior is because you know you're not perfect, you've sinned, and you need God to save you and to show you grace. If you're sinless, as Rome teaches, December 8th, 1854, Pope Pius IX, you don't need a savior, so you don't call God your savior. It makes no sense. Another writer says, quote, although she was a godly woman, it was God's grace, not Mary's perfection, that made her God's choice. She's, she's a chosen instrument. And so Mary and Joseph, as Mary being the human vehicle through which the God-man would come, it's not to highlight her sinlessness, it's to highlight God's grace. The focus here isn't so much on Mary as it is on, on God's grace. This is just a theme throughout the whole Bible, right? From Genesis to Revelation, that God chooses sinful and perfect people to bring about his plan. He chose Noah, a sinner. He'd save seven other people. Abraham, a sinner. Moses, a sinner. Right? Gideon. David, sinners, many others. Peter, the Apostle Paul, a sinner who said, I'm the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. You and I. You know, the fact that God chooses sinful men to preach the word of God is it's very humbling. It just almost doesn't seem right. 
But this is the theme of God's plan, as is the focus here on the text with Mary. The grace of God that magnifies his sovereignty in choosing the unlikely to bring about his perfect plan. Mary, again, a godly young woman, chosen not because she's perfect, but to highlight the sovereignty of God. God chooses the unlikely. Why does he do that? Why does God choose the unlikely? To show he's sovereign. To show I'm God and nobody else is. And I'm also gracious. Number three, the third exercise of the sovereignty of God here is in the Son of God. Announcing the majestic Son of God, verse 31 to 33. The Son of God. And here's where the text gets, really takes a, a step up and shifts into fifth gear. The Son of God, verse 31 to 33. Look there, verse 31. Gabriel says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there'll be no end of his kingdom. Six characteristics here. Six things I want us to see about this child under this third point. Six things. Number one, and these kind of ascend in their significance. Number one, of course, he's a son. Nothing super noteworthy about that, but as we'll see in Isaiah 9 in a little bit, that's pretty important for the prophecy. He's a son, a little boy. Second, his name, Jesus. You and I, when we, those of you who have kids or will, when you name your kid, you and your spouse sit down and talk about what should we name Junior? Well, God told Mary and Joseph what to name his son because he's his, capital H, son, Jesus. A very interesting name. The Greek, Yesu, is this name transliterated from Hebrew, Yeshua, or similar to Joshua, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, or short, Yah saves. Yahweh, the, 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 the name that many people in history, especially of Hebrew in Hebrew culture, they would just be hesitant to even say the name because God is so exalted. But his name, the name is Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. That's what Jesus means. Save from what? Of course, sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. A lot of the Hebrews weren't quite seeing it that way. They wanted more of a, a political savior for the moment. And Jesus kind of rebukes them and says, that's not your greatest need for the moment. I'll do all that, he says, in my second coming. But your greatest need right now is saving from sin. Every time someone would say his name, whether it was Aramaic, Hebrew, Yeshua, or Greek, Jesus, they were saying this blessed thing that Jesus would do, the Lord saves every single time. It's a reminder that whenever we think of Jesus, and as you sit down with maybe those who haven't bowed the knee to him yet this season, explain this to them what, if they don't know what his name means. And that whenever you think of Jesus, you need to think of him as a savior. That's his name after all. John three seventeen, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. As we've been studying in Romans 5, we're already condemned. 
by nature, being born in Adam, and by deed, because we fall short of God's standard for moral spiritual perfection. Jesus isn't a condemner. He's the Savior. He comes to rescue us out of what we're already in, not put us in some condemned state that we're not already in and kind of shame, shame, and furrowed brow at us and shake his finger and scold us, but to bring us out of the sin that we were naturally, and by thought, word, indeed, enslaved to and otherwise cannot get out of. Jesus' sole mission is to save his people from the already existing self-imposed condemnation of sin. The Lord saves. And let's tell people that. Let's say that this Christmas season and reflect on that. This is what the manger is about. That the Lord saves. This is why God became a man. To save other humans. A human to save other humans. A Savior wasn't sent for the angels. Jesus isn't an apparition. And this is a critical doctrine, by the way. His humanity is incarnation. First John says, if you deny that he came in the flesh, you can't go to heaven. If you don't believe in the incarnation, you cannot be forgiven. You cannot be saved because you're believing in a false Jesus. You need a human substitute, right? Flesh, meat, to save other flesh people, humans. And the only reason this God, the second person of the Trinity, comes down to wrap himself in flesh is so that that body can be killed and destroyed and have the wrath of God, the Father, placed upon him and his body so that it is not placed upon you and me as we deserve. And what would otherwise take us an eternity to endure, this Son of God, because he's God and man, endures in his suffering on the cross. It's the only reason he takes a body. Not to show off, not to say, hey, look, look how great I am with these miracles. All that's to point to that you would believe who he is, the Messiah, who takes away the sin of the world. That he's qualified. The reason that, one reason deity is so emphasized in the Bible, and a blind man could see the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, is so that you know, okay, this is a legit savior, not just another guy. We've been talking about this in Romans 5 who actually can atone for sin because he has none himself. And the only one that can be is someone who is holy, eternal God. The Lord saves. Third about this child, look at verse 32. He'll be great. Uh, That wasn't said about me when I was born. I don't know if that was said about you when you were born. Maybe it was. He'll be great. The, the, the original term for great here is interesting. And by the way, when, you're, when, when people are reading this and thinking about this, you sure? Great from Nazareth? But God, he, God, just, God loves that juxtaposition because it just, again, it highlights his sovereignty. This, the obscurity, the humility of God, it exalts his glory. That original term for great, it's very interesting. It means someone of high status. Not great in that, you know, a mother loves their son and he's just a great kid because that's how moms feel about their kids most of the time. It it means high status of great importance. Exalted ranking is the idea. Very high importance, most important ever. Fourth, about this child, 
son of the most high. Son of the most high. Look back at verse 32. He'll be great and will be called son of the most high. Remember, even even the demons call him this. Jesus, son of the most high God. They have good doctrine. Son of the most high. Now this is, Mary would, would like flinch when she heard that, huh? Because every Hebrew at that time understood this, this, this phrase, most high. The phrase appears 82 times in the Old Testament, 20 times in the book of Daniel. El Elyon, it was a phrase that every Hebrew had going through their mind all the time. Well, we know who that's talking about. It's, it's an exalted term for God. The most high. Him is, God is highest, highest individual in the universe. Not human. Uncreated God, El Elyon. And this term is all throughout the Old Testament. It first appears in Genesis 14 when Abraham meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest of the most high. And you keep going throughout the scriptures. It's in the book of Psalms. Everywhere in the book of Psalms is rightly so. As Psalms was Israel's hymnal and they wanted to sing and exalt God. Psalm 7, 17, I'll give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh El Elyon, most high. Lamentations three thirty eight, great text on God's sovereignty. Is it not from the mouth of the most high that both good and ill go forth. And so Mary, knowing texts like that, where that, that, that text speaks of God's sovereignty over all the world. Huh? Son of the Most High? Daniel 4.17, a great one in Daniel. Again, 20 times that phrase in Daniel alone. And, and Hebrews, they loved, the Israelites loved the book of Daniel for obvious reasons, because it talks about the end times and, the resurrection, Daniel 12, 2, the hundred prophecies given in Daniel 11 alone, which were fulfilled in the, many of which were fulfilled in the intertestamental time. Daniel 4, 17, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Talking about God's sovereignty over the kings at the time, Nebuchadnezzar and the Darius after that. So this would be startling as Mary hears this. Jesus is the son of the most high. And again, in Semitic thinking, son, a son in, in, in just this culture was like a photocopy of dad or a carbon copy. Not, not much stronger in their culture than ours is, is how this would be understood. Okay, it's, he, the son isn't the most high, so he's not God the father but he's son of the most high. So he's a copy, an exact replica, son of the most high. Again, that phrase in, in ancient East culture, son of was often used to refer to someone who possessed like the exact qualities of their father. And so there's no mistaking what's going on here, beloved. The child Jesus is equal to sovereign, holy, most high God who made the stars and is sovereign over every 
everything in the universe. Which means this child is deity. If you're equal to God, you too are deity. Of course, this brings out the Trinity, doesn't it? The glory and the, and the mystery of the true faith that God is three persons, one God. People misunderstand this a lot. How it all works, I don't know. Be born again and you'll start understanding, I guess. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all possessing the full attributes of deity, not forms, they're not forms, they're not parts of God, they're not, you know, the eggshell, the yolk, the white, that's heresy. They're not all parts of God, they are all truly God because they all possess all of the attributes of deity. They all possess what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of deity. Incommunicable attributes are those characteristics about God that we're not. Sovereign, omnipresent, everywhere equally in the fullness of our being, omniscient, knowing all things simultaneously that you could ever know, etc. This child is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He proves it with his miracles. His deity is all over scripture. You, like for some of those unfortunate cults, and may God save many out of them, because 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan's blinded them. Some of those cults that deny the deity of Christ that come knocking out your door. I was talking to one of us the other day and they're just going after one of our members. You have to be taught from scripture that Jesus is not God. You have to be like conditioned like like psycho like mass psychosis, you know. You have to be like almost gaslit into this, and this mass formation because it is so plastered all over the Bible that Jesus is God. Here, among many other places, Colossians two nine, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Titus two thirteen, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. John eight fifty eight, we studied this a couple. Christmas is ago. Before Abraham existed, Jesus says, I am. John 20, 28, Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. This child is God. Fifth about this child. He's a king. He's a king. Look at the end of verse 32. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Wow. Wow another check mark for messianic requirements to fulfill the prophecy. This goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, one of the Israelites' most favorite passages, the Davidic covenant, which says, look, your Messiah, Genesis 3:15, the seed of the woman who's coming, he must be a, he must be a king and he must be in the Davidic line, which they are, his human parents are and were. He'll be a king. Second Samuel 7, 16, your, your house and your kingdom, God says to David, shall endure before me forever. Jesus, the greater David, and then sixth, and, and he's an eternal king, sixth, an eternal king. Look at verse 33. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob or Israel, coming from the Israelite nation, partially fulfilled the millennial kingdom when All the great promises are finally fulfilled for God's people. And there will be no end to his kingdom. And as you you read the books of the Old Testament, like 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 
Like the, the, the Israelites, say like the post-exilic Israelite after the exile, before Jesus comes, say you're living in like 200 BC, you read those books and there's just like a sigh of, of discouragement as you read those because it's so-and-so's son became king. Often they did evil in the sight of the Lord and then they died, right? When is the not dying, not sinning king gonna come? And this is him. Jesus is going to come back and he will rule over the whole world. The world, what's this world coming to sometimes? I'll tell you, it's moving to a global theocracy under one individual, the Jesus of the Bible. That is fact. Absolutely what's going to happen. He'll return after the end of the tribulation. His feet will hit the Mount of Olives as Zechariah tells us, Zechariah 12 to 14. There'll be all kinds of chaos and craziness that happens. And then Jesus is going to reign for a thousand literal years. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6. And Psalm 2 tells us a little bit about that and preparing for that. And at the end of that time, there'll be a little bit of an uproar from Satan. And those who are born in the earth in the millennial kingdom during that time and don't get saved, a thousand years is a long time. And there'll be this futile, insane uproar, Christ will destroy them and create a new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21.1, and Christ will reign forever. That is absolutely what history is going to. Absolutely. And there will be no election. There'll be a sovereign return for our king. That his kingdom is said to be forever means he'll outlast, outlive every other king. This is this, is this little boy who's going to be born to Mary to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth, under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was about 700 years before this event with Mary that Isaiah said, and they all knew this passage, a child will be born to us, a son will be given. Okay, check that off, a son. And the government will rest on his shoulders, a king. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, or Most High. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, he's deity. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. All fulfilled, all of that, just in this statement to Mary. The only way you can, intentionally, you can miss this is if you're intentionally just covering it up. This is the Son of God. Uh, briefly, Fourth, number four and five, real quick here. Number four, the miracle of God. God exercising his sovereignty, verse 34 and 35, and the miracle of God or the miraculous conception. The miracle of God, look at verse 34. So Mary kind of puts two and two together and asks the obvious question. So how will this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child, that wasn't said about me to my parents when I was born. Your child will be holy. None of your kids, unfortunately, as wonderful as they are, are holy when they're born. We're all born in Adam. And that they're so cute, that they're so cute when they're little is God's grace to clothe and cover their depravity for a bit. The holy child will be called the son of God. So two things, just super important. I wish we had more time to get into it. But number one, the scandal here. 
the scandal and this miracle. Again, first century, rural, small, conservative town, Nazareth. Oh, sure, the Holy Spirit got you pregnant. Right. Of course. You know. And as it always happens in small towns where there's lots of chatter, there would be chatter about this couple. And so this was a great trial for young Mary. A great trial. He even took Joseph, who loved her. Remember in Joseph, in Matthew 1.17, it says he, you know, the, the, the death penalty is what the law said for this kind of thing in Hebrew culture. It's just the way it was, right? In Matthew 1.17, Joseph seeks to put her away quietly because he was a just and a righteous man. In other words, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prosecute this. A lot of scandal. The angel, of course, appears and says, no, Joseph, this is real. And the fact that they, like, they insist on this actually testifies to the veracity of it because of the scandal and the scorn and the suffering they're willing to endure. Because Mary's life backed it up. But even until Jesus was an adult in John 8, they're, they're still calling him uh, unfortunate, unwholesome terms and saying, you're born in fornication. For 30 years, this scandal would still endure. Theologically more important, though, the importance of the virgin conception, of course, is obvious in light of what we've, if you've been with us in Romans 5, right? Why the virgin conception? Why? We're all born in Adam. The only one whose death can actually cleanse us from our sins, actually quench the righteous wrath of God due our sins, actually present us just, righteous before God, is someone who is sinless, whose righteousness can be imputed to us in justification. And you got to be God for that to happen. If you have a righteousness, if you have a leftover righteousness that can be imputed to others, you're God. Hence, the, this is an essential critical doctrine of the faith. This is not a side doctrine. And God knows what he's doing. This is a miraculous conception, the only one that's ever happened. So that this baby will bypass Adam's nature, yet be human, able not to sin in his humanity, not able to sin in his deity, yet living by the normal means of grace to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. That's a whole sermon in itself, beloved. That Christ was a man, not fallen, but had flesh that could die. So fallen-ish in that sense. Truly God, truly man, and overcame every temptation, which is harder than not overcoming temptation. It's harder than buckling for the same reason that it's harder to clean 400 pounds than it's harder to give up, like when the bar's at your knees. He's God, he's Savior, this holy child. He bypasses the curse. Finally, number five, the sovereign power of God. The sovereign power of God, verse 36 to 38. The sovereign power of God, verse 36. And so here in these three verses, God will hammer down and say, you know, through Gabriel, look, I know all this is, seems kind of crazy, but I want you to remember and think about my sovereign power power. Look at verse 36. And he says, behold, so exhibit A here, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. Oh yeah, my, 
my relative who she can never, they can never have kids and they're really old now. She's with child. This is the sixth month for her who is called barren. Sovereign power of God emphasized there to say like, hey, I'm, this, is, this is God doing this. And then the, the clincher statement here in verse 37 that you love and I love, for nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. Hammering down. This is the clincher in all of this passage. We're talking about God here. Who spoke stars and galaxies into existence in the sun into which a million earths can fit. So this isn't going to be hard for me to do. And so Mary responding in an exemplary way. She gives an example for all of us believers to follow. Look at verse 38. Mary says, behold, and the Greek word is slave. Behold the slave of the Lord. And many of the New Testament writers will pick up that term. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. James, in his book of James, a slave of Christ Jesus. And there's no, no one better to be a slave of. Slave means I'm owned by you, O oh God. May it be done to me according to your word. In other words, your will be done. This is the exemplary response to things, maybe hard things in our life. And this for Mary, make no mistake about it, would be hard. The conception is miraculous. This, this vision would be cool. But the rest of the nine months, normal pregnancy, normal human scorn, gossip, slander, everyone talking about her but not to her, the scandal, and she says, may your will be done. And the Lord departed to her from her. The angel departed from her, excuse me. This is the Savior through which this humble young woman who sinned and needed God's grace, through whom you had come. Do you know him? Do you know this Savior? Do you love this Savior? Father in heaven, thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ. His name, Yahweh saves. He's great, of high status, son of El Elyon, on the Davidic throne, eternal reign, and brought forth in the normal difficulty, physically, biologically, and spiritually, socially, in a very tense situation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we go forward this week and we celebrate and we're with friends and family and enjoying all your good gifts this week. I pray as we enjoy the good food and company and maybe as things get stressful and busy, of course, sin doesn't take a holiday. I pray that our thoughts and our heart would be resting in Jesus Christ. That as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. That's our prayer, Father, today and going out this week that we would love Christ, whether this is the first day we've ever loved him by putting faith in him for salvation or we've known him for decades. May we grow in our warmth and our love for Jesus Christ, trusting you and that you'd give us opportunities to speak, maybe to friends and family who don't yet know and love him.
In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.